This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So no Dodger fans, I guess, in the audience. <laughs> uh, so we were watching the end together back there. So what was it like seeing the Arcus Hour here back home at UCSB? First of all, I'm sure you guys have heard this before, but that is, I mean, we've seen it in a lot of festivals. Um, major festivals that's one of the best screenings and sound systems that's really great because the accents people get a little thrown so if the if the sound is a little bit mediocre it's a problem so that was really nice and it's bright so it's good is that actually something because obviously this movie's you know going on the academy tour is that something as a studio and you worry about that kind of stuff when it, because you have the academy members coming into it and do you yell at the festivals like what the hell uh, you, you often don't find out until the moment you're screening in those moments, you know, and they're all different settings in all the different festivals. They, lots of them that like in, in Toronto and also uh, certainly in Telluride, it's all around a town. So they've, they've taken uh, facilities that were not necessarily built for that originally and upgraded them. So they're really good, but they're not like this. So this is a lot better. All right, so let's go back long ago. What was your, uh, your reaction when you first read the script or struck you emotionally? You know, I... I don't, I imagine this is true for a lot of people in this audience. I didn't know this history. I certainly knew a bit about Churchill and certainly thought he was an interesting, dynamic character, but I didn't know that, and this is really true history, that uh, uh, the majority of his parliament was quite pushing for peace treaty to be signed, and it was a lot of pressure, and I never understood and didn't know, and a lot of the English that we worked with on the movie didn't know this history either, that and it's part of the reason that I really loved the story reading it and wanted to make it was I think if if a different person had been sitting in that chair in that moment because as you can tell from the movie right they're they're talking about he's already taken over most of Western Europe and the next takeover would be England and that would be the whole coastline and we as the US weren't really ready to enter the war yet Um, FDR wasn't really getting that kind of support so we would they would have had that coastline and who knows what would have happened but it feels like we might not be sitting here in the same kind of democracy and same situation we have if a different person had been in that seat. Because Churchill was so headstrong about about Hitler. He knew he was one of the few people back in the early 30s saying that's the guy to be worried about. And people were sort of ignoring Hitler at the time. They thought he was kind of silly and they didn't track where he was going to go. Yeah, it's interesting because there's obviously the appeasement side and the, you know, the pro-war side going to war. Looking back, as the audience, we, of course, know appeasement was a bad idea. Right. But it was remarkable about your film. It covered that side realistically. Like, there was a valid fear. The appeasement side, you know, yeah. or negotiating with them. Did you have any concerns, like, how the contemporary audience would view that or making that side seem more empathetic or realistic? Yeah, I mean, I think it was one of the big struggles for Joe Wright, the director. And, and I mean, I, I would say most of us are kind of pacifists. Joe Wright would certainly describe himself that way, and I would describe myself that way. So it's hard in a way, in a particular time in our lives, to make a movie that, that it, in a moment this guy was, you would say, pro-war, but he, he wasn't. To me, he was anti-fascist, and it was such a extreme situation. I don't know if there would have been any other choice. And he, had they made the other choice, which I do understand, I, I see what you're saying, because much of this parliament, were, they were sort of landed wealth, right? So they had estates, and they had a lot to lose, and they were the sort of the wealthy and the affluent, some of them. And so the idea was, let's just sign a peace treaty, and we'll get out with the less damage. Um, and that's that's the history that a lot of people don't understand was happening. And 
and Churchill was so new to the situation and so new to that position, it was only his crazy stubbornness and headstrongness that sort of prevented that, I think, from happening. Now, did Anthony McCartney, the screenwriter who you worked with in the past, and we'll talk cover a little of that, did he? Was he predominantly did all the research, create the script? And yeah, then it's it completely originally uh, conceived by him. He he would say if he were here, one of the things that drew him to it was he realized that three of the greatest speeches of all time, many people rate them as three of the greatest speeches of all time, were written in this one month period by Churchill, and so that just drew him. And he started reading the the speeches in that time period and how could that have happened, and then started going into all the records. and And uh, most of that is actually taken from record, but I think what's what's Hard and sometimes people don't give the screen, the screen, the script as much credit as it deserves. Is that it's the structure of that? It's understanding how to take that period of time and boil it down into something that is as powerful as it is, because it's largely a chamber piece, right? I mean, we don't cut to big aspects of the war, and um, to be able to make that compelling and be able to, you know, boil that up in a point where you feel that tension, I think, is is really kind of the genius of the script. Was there any conversations? Because you did have a few battle scenes which you needed to show the cost yeah. of the war. Was there anything like, did he want more? Or was any kind of like... Yeah, we so we, we knew that Dunkirk was also shooting. <laughs> and they had a, a, a quite a larger budget than we did by many fold. And um, also Joe Wright had already done an amazing Dunkirk scene, if anyone's seen Atonement. It's sort of this famous single-camera movement shot that goes on forever that's beautiful and incredibly choreographed and, you know, was a big, long, full, many days of prep and a full day of shooting. Um, so he had sort of already delivered his Dunkirk, and we assumed that the Dunkirk, which we hadn't seen yet, was going to be showing all of the battle. So um, Joe was very smart, and, and uh, in the script we, we understood, and also budget-wise, we didn't have the money for it. So you might not even notice it but it it when you don't have very much money and you have a um a sort of a you have to change the appetite and one of the brilliant things i think he came up with when you go off this overhead shot of the bombs hitting and and all that landscape and all that sort of some of that is we've, we shot at the base of that and then much of that is visual effects and then it slowly sort of pans over that landscape and then it, it goes into something that seems like like hillside and then it goes up to a, a, a man's eyeball, a, a dead man's eyeball. So that's Joe's conception of how do I show sort of the horror of war in a way that's poetic and poignant, uh, but doesn't cost, you know, we don't have to have 500 extras. So Yeah, it was actually a beautiful setup because you had Churchill with the red light giving the speech right. and the red eye. Uh, it shows what you can do sometimes, a very uh, subtle thing. Plus, of course, the Citadel blowing up. Right. You know, was, right. you know, one of the most impactful scenes. Uh, so let's talk a little about Anthony. I mean, you work with him in theory of everything. How was it yeah. having that pre-established relationship able to oh, then segue it, in the yeah. darkest hour? It makes it a lot easier, as anybody knows who are, I'm sure you're doing on your film crews here. Once you have a little bit of a relationship like that, or, and you, it, a lot of it's uh, unspoken. You know, you sort of, uh, it, it was a trusting relationship. It was easy for him to... We were wrapping Theory of Everything. We were still shooting, and we just finished shooting, actually. We were just going into post and about to go into a little tiny reshoot. And he said, I have this idea of Churchill. And, you know, you sort of hear that, and you think, okay, Churchill, I don't know, a movie, like a documentary, what's it going to be? And then he started talking to me about, again, this history that I didn't know, um, and then gave me, a, um, a, I think it was a treatment form initially, and then a draft of it, and then 
we went through just a few little drafts and then we gave it to Working Title, which was the company we were working with at the time. I had brought, we had brought them theory of everything. So now we had this relationship and it was quite easy from that moment on because, for at least to be in, in pretty quick, safe dialogue with them about the development of it. And then it became immediately who's going to play this icon. That was the main. And I'm assuming working with a screenwriter, you, 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 you trust each other, we give each other notes. You're comfortable saying, you yes. know what, Dante, this is not working, or at least I need your help with this. Yeah, I think it's what's really great. I mean, someone like Anthony is quite open to rewrites. He's not f- fearful of them. Everything isn't precious. He he likes to change things if uh, because he's still working on the idea. He's sort of exercising um, the concept. And it was er- so early on that it was quite easy to be sort of fluid with that and say, this is great, but will this be something people go to the movies to see? And is this too heady? And we can't have it all be talky-talky. And one of the influences I would have naturally, just being a woman, was just sort of trying to bring in a little bit more of the emotion of Clemmy and, and the secretary. Because Clemmy, in a way, is a, the character that allows you to see the human side uh, of Churchill. He, he's, he's quite human. He's, he's so... Um, not I mean, he is an iconic figure, but he, he was such a he had such a human side to him that yeah. Speaking of those two, um, you know, obviously unique actresses that are strong enough to go toe to toe with Churchill and yeah. Gary Oldman. Uh, what did you see in uh, Lily James and Chris Scott Thomas? Like, I know they can do it. Like, they're going to be able to. Yeah. So again, that's a lot of. Um, I mean, Joe. I th- I know through that the casting director was going through a number of uh, women for the secretary, and um, Lily James came up sort of simultaneous because Working Tell had also just worked with her on Baby Driver. If anyone's seen that, um, she's the waitress. And they go off, and I won't spoil. But um, and she just has a very natural, um, empathetic quality about her, and she's a total pro and. Um, we were quite excited when she read it and wanted to do it. Um, Kristen Scott Thomas was a, you, you know, it was a little bit of a dance to get her a little bit. She had to be a little bit wooed because I think it was like, oh, playing Clemmy, that's complicated, right? Again, it's a, it's a character other actresses have played. How am I going to play her new? And, you know, she pushed a bit for the, for the character to be brought up a little bit in the script. And, uh, Joe really, really wanted her, and they went back and forth, and she and he, he, he took the train to Paris and got her to do it, so it was good. All right, so we'll talk about the lead a little. Sure, Gary Oldman did a two-episode arc on Friends, where he played World War I soldier, <laughs> spitting on Joey, but uh, what else did you see in Gary Oldman? Like, he can do it. That's actually the only reason we cast him was the Friends. Friends? Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you know, I, I think we felt like there's so few actors. First of all, a bunch of people have played Churchill in the past, right? But you, you really wanted to be a, a, a Brit. That made sense. Um, there were some Americans talked about, actually. But um, um, we wanted to be a British actor, but also someone who you sort of say to yourself, you need the Daniel Day-Lewis, you need the... And there isn't. there just isn't anybody we thought of other than Gary Oldman that could be exciting to see play this role. Obviously, Gary doesn't look like Churchill. For anybody out here who doesn't know who Gary Oldman looks like, if you just Google, he doesn't really look anything like Winston Churchill. So that's a challenge because Winston Churchill's so um, photographed and so known. And um, I mean, his eyes are much closer together than, and Gary's eyes are much closer together than Churchill's, and he doesn't have that weight, and he didn't gain a ton of weight for it. That, that is the prosthetic makeup, and then there's a fat suit. But um, it's also the way 
Gary is just able to inhabit a character. You know, you'll see in a lot of his movies, right, he's always become something else. You don't go, oh, it's Gary again. Um, and the, the main challenge of getting Gary to do it and getting Gary to agree to it was that Gary said, I, I want to be able to look in, in the mirror and hear and see Winston Churchill. And if I can't do that, I'm not doing this. And it, w- it was very, he was very reticent because it's scary to play somebody who's so iconic and other actors have played him, Robert Finney, for one, quite well. And uh, so it's how to make it fresh and how to make it new. And the thing that I don't know if everybody, you, you really realize, because the makeup is so fabulous and astounding, it's just he has so much um, of the physicality and the voice of Churchill. And the way he modulates his voice all the way through, is it's so playful and serious and, and it changes at all, all the times. And he listened to all this tape of Churchill but he would then start early on in, in prep, he would start leaving messages for Joe Wright on his phone, like as Churchill. So I thought, we probably, he's probably going to say yes. He's probably going to do it, yeah. What surprised me is the humor, actually. Yeah. Yeah, like Gary, I mean, Gary, he's a terrific actor, but even Churchill, I didn't know he was that funny. He's super funny. Yeah. And if you've seen other movies about Churchill, it's weird. They're sort of serious. They're, they're not very funny. And he was an incredibly witty man and, and, and wrote like thousands of pages. I mean, he's written so much historical material and was just incredibly articulate. And he did spend all that time on the speeches that you're seeing, even more so than we could show. He would rewrite them and rewrite them and scratch through the things and have them retyped and retyped because he thought the importance of words was so essential that what he was saying was how he was going to mobilize the nation. So. Um, so let's talk about logistical stuff. What was the biggest challenge in creating 1940 London? Ah, so many. But uh, shooting in London's great because there is a lot of period stuff still existing there. Um, Joe, right, rightfully so, sort of wanted to be outside of some of that. He likes the idea of the crew kind of coming together and being on location. So he sort of favored being outside London when we could. And, and London is quite expensive and so overshot in a way. We did up shooting in Manchester and and um, Leaveston, and we went to Leeds. So a bunch of that stuff that looks like London are just old, abandoned buildings that we completely redress, like the Buckingham Palace, where you see with Ben Mendelsohn playing the king. That large room is just in one of those abandoned estates, and it's um, Sarah Greenwood, who's this amazing production designer, completely created all that. Um, but a weird thing about 1940s London is um, there was so much coal being burned that all the buildings were very, very dark and coal-stained, and they aren't anymore. So when you shoot, you can't. We couldn't afford to like spray them all down. And everything. So, so what we would do is choose buildings, and then we would get old sketches, and then the visual effects added a lot of that in there because it was it's quite a dark time. Um, in terms of all the architecture. And when you see him come out at number 10, Downing Street, you know, which is their equivalent of the White House, if you will, and, he, and he's out there and he says Paul Roger, and they first meet him and he goes inside. That's the actual 10 Downing, and we were one of the only feature films to ever be allowed to use it. So it was great. You, we couldn't shoot this way or that way down the street because it's sort of high security and they don't want people to know what's down this way or that way, so we had to shoot straight on. But it was really fun to do that. Now, on a more sad note, what was the biggest challenge in casting, especially Neville Chamberlain? Right, so Neville Chamberlain, who is in this version, played, in this version, the only version you saw, <laughs> uh, was played by a guy named Ronald Pickup, but we had originally cast John Hurt 
which was, I, I, I mean, both Gary Oldman's quite loves the guy and then wanted him and so did Joe and all of us. It's like John Hurt was amazing. And he was cast and we were in prep and uh, he, had, he had just an accident really where he'd fallen out of bed and became ill and then was hospitalized. We were still trying to work it out. We were moving the schedule around to keep him in and then, um, as many people know, he passed away. So that was quite dramatic. Let's just give you a little. All right, so the cinematographer Bruno Debenel, did I get that right? Yeah. Awesome. Worked on Inside Lewin Davis, Amelie, and Harry Potter and the Half Blood Prince. Interesting, one of my students, Jamie, who's directing, mentioned it looked, the lighting looked like Half Blood Prince to her when she was watching this. Oh, interesting. It's kind of a okay. varied portfolio. So, what did you see in yeah. him that, like, wow, he can definitely capture oh, this? He's world. amazing. Uh, he He's very strong willed and opinionated in a good way. And, uh, he wanted, and this is also, again, Joe and the production designer and from the historical research, there, it's basically the whole movie is taking place when they would do their blackouts, right? They would, so when he's on the rooftop in that one moment, um, in a more Hollywood version of it, you would see, you'd see a lot of London, right? You'd light it up and just see it, even though it wouldn't, but that wasn't realistic. So it was all either browned out or blacked out at the time. You know, to protect themselves from the flyover bombing. So um, that's how Joe wanted it, and that's how the, the, the story was written for it to be. So, um, And Bruno was quite serious about having it not feel like a lit movie, like not feeling like we have huge lights on set. So you, that's part of that very contrasty look. You've seen the blacks are very black and the shadows, um, all of the stuff that's in the Churchill War Rooms, that's exactly how they looked. Um, and lots of times when people portray something like that, they'll sort of light it up in a way that isn't very realistic. So, uh, but I think the cinematography is sort of incredible. To me, it looks like film, but obviously we were digital. And to me, it sounds like when, when you had the script, you have to have everybody on the board. As a producer, you ever have a situation where you don't have the cinematographer, director, and sync? Oh, sure, there's millions of moments. I'm not telling those. Yeah, there's a No, but here in this movie, but other films. Yeah. The type of thing where you're fortunate when everybody kind of just goes down the line. Yeah, well. no, it's just a, it's a, such a process. I mean, we were in prep for four or five months. Uh, it's like a 54-day shoot. So there's all these processes where people aren't agreeing, aren't speaking to each other, and then they're coming together on something. But um, I think what helps when you have someone like Joe Wright directing, he's such, he is such a clear vision. Uh, visualist um, and the the script in a way doesn't lend itself to doing a lot of you know crazy camera movements or that kind of stuff and it's not an action movie in that regard so when he would bring that sort of um, more uh, aerobatic camera if you will um, it was really fun I mean like that sequence where the guy is getting the telegram that they're going to you know not going to make it through the night. That's all sort of Joe Wright moving the camera and doing that. So he was really the visionary for that. And that then, and Bruno was in line with him along there for that whole time. So that, that developed early on. One thing about casting, especially for me, is King George, who yeah. many people played him. Ben Mendelsohn only had a few moments, but had a, a, a wide range of emotional beats. Yeah. What, what did you see in casting? Like, he can do it because he had a very small right. screen time. And but. he's an Aussie. I mean, that's kind of daring, right? To cast an Aussie as the king of England. <laughs> uh, and he was sort of scared to death to play that. Um, he hadn't won the Emmy for Bloodline when we cast him, and then he won it right after. Um, 
But because there's a lot of things, he looks uh, quite a lot like, like, like King George, actually, the sixth. He looks a lot like him. And um, he's such an amazing actor. I don't know if people have seen him in other things. He was in Animal Kingdom, that feature film. He was, um, he's obviously in Bloodline as the sort of nasty, messed up brother. Um, and people don't typically cast Ben Mendelsohn as the good sort of straight up guy. And he does it really well, I thought. And the accent was uh, obviously a challenge for him, and he did that really well. And um, it, I think it was a, a combination of look and acting ability. And it's a tough one to cast because you're following up Colin Firth, and you know he won, and like the King. And there's a, this is a different time, same King, obviously stuttering King, but it's a different time period. So at that point, but the point that we're showing. He had sort of stopped so much stuttering as he would do exactly what Ben does in this film. He'd stop and do more of a pause before he would go on to speak, so it's less of an affected speech, but I thought he was great. And conversely, Stephen Delane had the hardest role playing Halifax, yeah. who we don't want to root for, yeah. but really strong. He gets know? almost no attention either. I mean, and everybody, when, when you point him out, they're like, oh, he's great. But I, I, yeah, I think it's probably because the role is so, he so consistently delivers it. Um, and it's not as showy, maybe, as some roles, but uh, yeah, he's very, very good in it. And he's Game of Thrones. People know him for other things. He was in, he was in the hours. And the re- reality is, I mean, he could have been a two-dimensional character, just like we want to get rid of Churchill. But he was really, you know, yeah. thought out. He wasn't the villain. Yeah, and actually, all of the actors, I think, had quite a lot of. We did something very rare that you don't get to do in feature films very often. It actually is as expensive as people think. We did two weeks of rehearsal. And it was just mostly table read with all the cast that we could get. And then, um, and then they got to work in sort of smaller chunks of the script with Joe and uh, sometimes with Bruno, the DP, script supervisor. And that's just such a rare thing. And all of them will say it. All of these veteran actors will say, we never get to have that opportunity. So, you know, a lot of them will walk in to a set. It's because of money and scheduling. And some of the people in this room probably know that. That guy over there knows. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It it is a a situation of, it's sort of economic pressure, but a lot of known actors will say, if they they walk on a set and the, the first moment that they come on the set and they're meeting their wife, that they're about to divorce in the scene. And that's the first time they're meeting that actor. So um, with this, I think we, we really sort of wanted to enrich them in the history. And we also had historians come and speak to them about the time period. And they all worked very closely with both costumes and the props and the things that were on their dresser. And so to make that life a little bit realer for them. It's interesting because the scene, which I think that, that I propose for, is when Lily James, uh, sorry, Lily James uh, tells... Winston Churchill, that her brother's a Dunkirk, lost. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's no dialogue. Could, yeah. you, could they have really done that without rehearsal? Like that kind of intimate scene, would yeah. they have been able to really pull that off as well as they did if they didn't have that time to get Yeah, the and actually to... something like that isn't, as, isn't really rehearsed, but the, it's more about that they've had some sure. time to sort of be with each other and do some other scenes. That, that, that was a, became a little bit more mercurial in the moment, and um, it was nice. I think that was also driven a bit by the material, but then also Joe pushing the idea of having a quiet moment, right? Because Churchill's such an orator, and he's so amazing, and he's always trying to, you know, possess the room with his speech and and change people's opinion. It was really nice to have that very, very, very quiet moment, I think, in the movie. Now, you had a little more of a bigger moment, which we seen we watched together over there, the subway car. 
yeah. which is really the climax of the movie. Run us through. How do you plan a scene like that as a producer? Because you have the car, the actors, the cast. And that's the set. one scene everybody goes, did that really happen? Because <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's many of the things, even in the, the, the phone call with the president, that's... Um, much, but that that is basically what they said. He ba- he basically does do that. FDR really did have that conversation with him. Um, and the subway, uh, the way that that came up was Anthony was trying to compress in a screenplay. How am I going to um, convey the idea? The, the truth of it is that Churchill was very known to going to the people, and he would go to the people for their opinions. And often, when he was getting resistance in in the administration, in the parliament, he would do that. Um, and was sort of known for it, would go out, you know, and put his hat on a cane and march people down the street. And um, so, and the idea was he, he did, he did go on the, on the, he did try to go on the underground once and came back up. And so that was Anthony's dramatization to convey this moment and try to pull that piece of who Churchill really was in that climactic moment and give it, you know, some heart. And so... It's a, it, there's a sentiment to that scene for sure. Was it a, was it a, a location? Was it a we? Was it a uh, lo- oh, sorry, sorry. Logistic wise, we looked forever for um, a period car, and we found one that was great, but they wouldn't let us smoke in it. You couldn't have anybody <laughs> smoke, and we didn't want to do fake cigar because there was a lot of reasons, and uh, that doesn't look very good. And we didn't want to do the visual effects on the end, so um, we took a car that was uh, less the look, and then the production. Department. I'm sorry. The uh, production design team completely changed the roof and the signage and and all those windows that are just the little diamond that you can't see through. That's not because you couldn't see outside. That's actually how they were. Um, and then it was shot on a track that we rocked it. Just have grips rocking it. Really boring. Um, with lights going by. And then um, obviously when he goes into the actual tube and is yelling, "So this is the underground." That's actually we shoot that in a in a in an underground that we've made look like the period, and then the train is laid in visual effects. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Dario Marinelli, did I get that right? Yes. Okay. Uh, did the music for Atonement and Kobo and the Two Strings, one of my favorite movies. I'm glad you have this notes. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> what, did, what did you think brought to your score? Oh, I don't, you know, Dario is really interesting. Like, he did this in Atonement, too. He, if you rewatch that movie, you know, the, the typing of the keys and all the things in that movie that are, that he, he blends the set sound and the natural sounds that are going on there with the score. And what he did sort of early on, he sort of, it sort of sounds like these big bass drums, and then they sort of sound like bombs. And those would have been like the, the sounds that they would have heard in London when the bombing started. And he, started, he starts bleeding that stuff into the score, and then he's obviously also got big orchestra behind it as well. But um, I think it's sometimes where you don't notice that it's actually score because he's doing that bleeding, and then he goes very big for the emotion. And I think the film needs that. I think it needs that kind of drive. And also it's a lot of talking, right? It's a lot of speeches and a lot of dialogue going on. And so... I think that 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 was sort of sort of lifts it in a way that you need to. But he's worked with Joe a lot, and they have like a completely unspoken. So similar to you and Anthony, you, the pre-established yeah, yeah, relationship. They've had a lot, yeah. All right, so and also Joe uses a guy that does the sound design, like off his computer in Canada, and a lot of that sound design is also blurred in there along with Dario. So they've had that experience as well. All right, so well, so how are you feeling with the reception of the film so far, and the inevitable comparisons to theoretic political climate issues in 
the United States, let's say. <laughs> Somewhere here. <laughs> um, you know, uh, we've been on this circuit a little bit with at some of the festivals, and it's interesting because so many movies, I mean, Battle of the Sexes, so many movies that are out of the shape of water, these movies that you're going to see if you haven't seen them already, they're all getting the, did you, were you connecting this to the U.S. presidency? I mean, so many films, right? But we were all obviously far into pre-production before anybody knew who our president would be. Um, but our film is getting some comparison only because I think it's so much about leadership and an orator. And um, so it's, it's uh, yeah, it's interesting. We did not have any, um, we weren't steering the film at all towards that. Uh, but I do think it's it's fun to make a movie about a leader that was so headstrong and stubborn and all those adjectives that we can use for someone else, but also that was so articulate and so educated. And, um, I mean, Churchill was a voracious reader and a voracious studier of history and incredible writer himself. And I think that is the interesting part for us about him because in this particular time in history that w- that really came to bear and was so powerful um churchill as we show in the movie because we were all trying to say he isn't uh, there, he's far from a perfect man he made huge errors and and got many people killed so he's a lot of there's a lot of complications about portraying him that way and so we were trying to say it's this particular time where uh it's, it's fantastic that he was the one sitting in that chair. It's amazing, because obviously he was so eloquent with words, they mentioned it. It was really subtle when you saw Lily James kind of mouthing his speech. It was one of my favorite moments, nice little yeah. touch, because it's hard to dramatize yeah. writing. Yeah, um, and it's a speech after another speech, right? He's done the outer cabinet speech, and then we have this speech. So you're sitting there, as a modern audience, going to sit through that much speech giving. So, um, and I think what we're, the, on the reception of it, we're quite excited because it seems to be getting a lot of, I don't know, push and good response. So, And it's harder to make a movie like this. I mean, nobody flies through the air with a cape. No one. <laughs> no one's saving the world, really. So Dorothy didn't have a director's cut or he wanted to put a superhero in there or something? Right, little animated figures. <laughs> uh, well, we're on your alma mater, so I was wondering, uh, you know, how did your experience here at UCSB? Well, we didn't have any of this stuff that you guys have. <laughs> uh, lead you to producing. Um, I had a great teacher here, Dana Driscoll. I have many great teachers, but Dana was sort of my mentor, I would say. And um, I got early on to be in I was on in his class. I think it was my freshman or sophomore year. And then um, he just threw us all out there and started start making movies, which is terrifying. And um, I also got to be an assistant editor for him. He was editing a feature film that he was doing from USC, which was so fun. I never even knew what editing was until I did that. And um, I got to make a, I was making an animated film here. We were pushing things around and doing pixelation, if you know what that is, frame by frame, where you're moving physical objects and flunked out of two regular classes, non-film classes, while we were shooting at midnight to six. And then it turned out that the shutter was closed the entire time. So so that I still stayed in filmmaking, so that's good. Uh, So so getting into producing, when you got into it today, any advice to students, has it changed? Like any entry point, or is it different? It's crazy. You guys can make a whole feature film on an iPhone now. You're so lucky. 
I mean, I know that that's not particularly easy, but, you know, Tangerine was made like that. I mean, you know, I still was in the time where you had film going through a camera and you actually cut it and you put pencils in your mattress and ran reels like this and cut it and then spliced it together, taped it together. And so, I don't know, the technology is so wacky, crazy that it's, there seems to me to be so much opportunity now for um, storytellers, right? And you don't have to be narrative storytellers, and you can be experimental and documentary, but the idea of, t- of, of sort of conveying something in a media form, I think, is, is actually gotten much broader. I think there's a lot of avenues, and you should all hire me later. <laughs> well, we always end our show with the same questions, which we actually asked you and Anthony two years ago. Can you tell us about a movie theater experience you had as as a child, it was something that inspired you? Maybe even go into the film. Oh, business. right, I forgot. Or just a that very this fond is your memory. question. I think playing hooky and sneaking into a movie theater and seeing, well, maybe it was. I don't remember actually. Oh, oh, actually, when I wasn't even a child, but we, a bunch of us, drove down from. UCSB in the back of a pickup truck and went to LA, the opening of Star Wars, and that was really fun um, and made me kind of remember how fun filmmaking can be. I mean, film going can be. Uh, and what's the other question? Well, that was it. It is something. Yeah. Oh, but you're not going to stop me. <laughs> well, tonight I want to give a special thank out to Focus Features who let us screen this movie weeks before it's coming out. It's coming out Thanksgiving weekend. Yes. Uh, and I think it's an important film. It's, nice. it's important to see our leaders. You know, and what power they do have or influence and guide us. And I really want to thank you for coming back home to us here at UCSB to share this event with us. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.